The time is upon us, friends. Conventions begin Monday. No one knows what these things are going to look like. And who else do you want to break down the most bizarre political conventions in modern history than your boy? I'm going to be there every second of it. Because I'm going to be doing live coverage on my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Young. Here's the details. DNC runs from August 17th to August 20th. RNC is the 24th through the 27th. Now, I'm going to be live covering mostly the main speaker blocks. That is 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern time each of those nights. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. The PX3 live coverage is on. Don't miss a second of it. Head to twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young and follow my channel now or download the Twitch app that is on iOS and Android. Search for Justin R. Young there and follow that account. No lie, all of my depression about not being able to cover these things live has been channeled into our live stream uh, uh, sets and, and energy and planning. So I'm very excited to see you guys and watch these bizarre spectacles with you. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Hello and welcome everybody to our back to school special of the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. Of course, I am Justin Robert Young. However... I did not feel that I should be the only voice hosting this show. No, no, no. I am a, 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 a childless millennial, uh, one of these insufferable, dual-income, no-kid uh, 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 wastrels just thumbing my nose at the biological imperative, and I have no actual skin in this back-to-school game. In fact, I am sure that many of the parents listening, although they might sympathize with the political positions of folks who don't have kids, they probably, I'm guessing, slowly shake their heads one way and another when they hear these opinions because you think you know, but you have no idea, which is why I had to recruit uh, somebody that's usually behind the scenes on PX3, a huge part of of this program, she books all the interviews for this show. She has helped me shape uh, not only the live stream, but the podcast and the newsletter and Raise the Dead. My friend, it's Tamar. Tamar? Great to be here. I, how, how does it feel to be on this side? I feel like, I mean, it, to me, you are not a stranger to the podcast because you are as much a part of the show as, as I am behind the scenes. But uh, I, I realized before we started recording that this is the first time that the listeners might uh, uh, have heard your voice. Yeah, it's a little like The Wizard of Oz where I'm coming out from behind the curtain. But I hope I'm <laughs> yes. more than like a little tiny guy pulling some levers. When, when really you have produced half the show already because you booked the guests that we are going to have. And we are going to indeed have experts not only on the choices that parents are being offered 
by school counties and districts across the country, but also the parental view of how to navigate those choices and then how parents should be watching some of what's happening federally in terms of the money that would come from the federal government to make these changes that schools need, that and the mailbag coming up. But first, Tamar, the reason why I wanted to have you on is that I wanted as few childless voices on this program as possible because this is a show for the parents. You are the mother of two young boys. Uh, what are the choices that you are faced with and you are making in terms of schooling? Yeah, so my uh, rising first grader is going to be starting in another 10 days with online school. That's all his school is offering right now. Um, my two-year-old is going to be staying home. Um, his daycare closed and my other job laid me off. So I'm full-time parenting him um, instead of sending him back to daycare. And I should also mention that I have um, a recently graduated 18-year-old stepkid. Oh, yes. <laughs> who I can also talk about what it's like to have a high schooler uh, in uh, in these pandemic times and things like that. So um, she's yeah, because, graduated, and um, and I also have little ones, so I have sort of the full gamut of experience here. She got the 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 end of high school coveted, right? Like like that was just vacated because of the virus. What what should be the uh, a, a senioritis cruise to graduation just totally taken from her, right? Yeah, no prom, no real graduation, oh, uh, everything on Zoom. Um, so yeah, it was um, it was a little hard to say like, hey, this is sort of a once in a lifetime bad event you're living through. <laughs> you can't have you can't just go to those teenage hormones and just be like, well, may you live in interesting times, huh, kid? <laughs> yeah, they don't really have that global uh, older person viewpoint yet. No, they do not. Uh, all right. Well, uh, uh, we will, of course, have your insights permeating through the rest of the show. But let's talk about our first interview. And that is one where I sat down with Jessica Calarco. She is an associate professor of sociology at Indiana University and studies inequalities in education and family life. She is the author of Negotiating Opportunities, how the Middle Class Secures Advantages in School and a Field Guide to Grad School, Uncovering the Hidden Curriculum. You can find her on Twitter, at Jessica Kalarka. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Schools. This is this has become a major issue, not only uh, in our national discourse, but on this podcast specifically, uh, and everything I do, really, the, my newsletter, the, the thing that people want to talk about the most uh, is exactly when, how, and how safely schools can reopen in the fall. So before we get into the, the specific kind of issues of uh, where we are in, in terms of the safety and uh, of, uh, the COVID of it all, could you just, from your perspective, lay out broadly how much kids going to school kind of interconnects with so much of our society, both economically and otherwise? Absolutely. So the way that we treat schools in our society is to push onto them so many responsibilities. Schools are not only places where children go to learn necessary skills and content, 
but also the place that they go for meals, for health care. Uh, it's the child care that so many families and especially mothers rely on to allow them to work uh, to, for pay in order to support their families. Uh, it's a place where children socialize. It's a place where communities come together. Uh, they, and it's also an organization that we often expect to solve larger problems of inequality in society. Uh, we expect schools to pull kids out of poverty and to help middle-class kids get into elite uh, colleges and universities. Uh, we put those expectations on schools and we very rarely fund them in a way that would allow them to achieve any of those goals uh, as effectively as they could. So this is not simply just, I mean, I think that that caricatures of the the haggard parents who are just desperate to get their kids out of the house, while certainly kernels of truth can can be there. Uh, uh, this this is not simply just uh, 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 parents looking to to eject their kids out of you know their 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 purview. This is connected to so much, and and it seems specifically for kids in lower middle class and lower class households. Absolutely. So, and, and as you were saying, it's not just about parents wanting their kids out of their hair. Parents are being pulled in so many directions right now. They're being told by their employers and by our government that they need to get back to work uh, and that their work is essential for the economy. And, and many are essential. Many parents are essential workers who have continued to have to leave the house uh, to go to work and are struggling to figure out how do they keep their families safe? How do they keep their kids safe? How do they make sure that their kids are getting the education that they need? And understanding that being physically in school is one of the best ways to make that happen, but also being concerned about, is that safe right now? And is this a place where I can allow my child to be? And do I have the options? Do I have the resources to keep my child home um, if that option is available to them? The vectors that we've seen this battle fought on tend to resemble something, uh, if not completely, like this: that kids, younger, uh, uh, you know, younger people in general, are affected less by COVID nineteen. Now, of course, there is a million miles of debate of exactly what that means, but broadly speaking, if we're going to move forward, let's assume that that's an argument. Uh, and teachers, specifically older teachers, are obviously more susceptible to it, and therefore we need to make allowances for them. Is there anything else that beyond the surface level kind of Twitter discourse that, that you would like to highlight as another just problem that we need to think about uh, uh, as we discuss kids going back to school beyond just kids go don't get sick and uh, 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 teachers and professors do? Absolutely. I, I think one of the key things here is that the education experts have crunched the numbers and tried to figure out, uh, based on the CDC guidelines, is it possible to open schools safely? And basically what some experts have concluded is that especially at the elementary level where kids are with the same teacher all day, they're not mixing across classrooms where you'd have an increased likelihood of spread um, and where they can be uh, fairly easily contained uh, in terms of lunchrooms and in terms of uh, recess access, uh, that for those kids, essentially, there are ways to send students back to school safely, but it will cost a tremendous amount of money. Uh, some estimates suggest up to $245 billion to reopen public schools with those safety protocols in place to 
not only protect kids, but especially to protect the teachers uh, who would be asked to step into those roles if schools were to reopen. And certainly, as you were mentioning before, parents want schools to reopen because they know it's good for their kids and because they need that child care and that social interaction for their kids. But essentially what the government is doing uh, by not providing the necessary funds uh, for schools to reopen safely, and, be, and it has to be the federal government because state budgets and local budgets are so over depleted at this point, even though state and local tax dollars typically fund 90% or more of the costs of education. Uh, right now, those budgets are so depleted that there is no extra money left to put in place the necessary safety protocols uh, to keep students and teachers and staff and families of all of those involved safe. And so essentially, policymakers are pushing schools to reopen uh, for families and for the economy, uh, but they're not giving them the money to do so in any way, shape, or form that might be safe. And that's what's essentially creating so many challenges for families in terms of trying to figure out, do I send my child to a potentially unsafe school if it is open, or do I keep my child home instead? And not all families have the same resources to even make that choice. Uh, that certainly the, the most affluent families who also tend to be the white families have more resources to be able to make that choice between sending their child to a public school or possibly enrolling them in a private school that has more money to open safely uh, or possibly uh, keeping them home and either homeschooling them or hiring a private teacher or a private tutor uh, to teach their child instead, whereas many low-income families and then families of color don't have those same options. If their schools are opening and that's the only option they have, that's what they're forced to do. Or if their schools are moving fully online, but they still have to go to work, uh, they have to figure out how to manage that themselves as well. When you say expensive safety protocols, what are we talking about? I mean, we're talking about everything from small class sizes, making sure that there are uh, there's enough physical room within classrooms so that students can be six feet apart, ideally. I've heard some schools push it down to three feet and everyone facing the same direction because that's all they can afford. Yeah. Uh, but really, the CDC is telling us the more space, the better. Many schools will need things like updated ventilation systems uh, because we know that this is airborne um, and that breathing on, uh, kind of inside air is, is a great way to, to spread this even without close contact. Uh, many schools will also need things like hot water. Uh, that there are schools across the country where kids can't wash their hands with the kinds of hot water that they need to kill these germs. Um, schools will also need protective equipment uh, for teachers and possibly for students who can't afford it on their own. Uh, and so there's all kinds of costs that go along with reopening safely, uh, possibly more buses to, to be able to stagger the start times or stagger the arrival of students at school so you don't have huge masses of children all trying to get into the building at the same time. There's sort of all of these tiny ways that the costs add up uh, to actually make reopening schools a safe option uh, for students and especially for teachers. And this would specifically be in an elementary school setting where you got one teacher and you're with them for the entire day. You are staggered lunchroom times, blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, that That is a lot easier to manage compared to, let's say, a middle school or high school scenario where you're dealing with up to six teachers a day before extracurriculars. Uh, when we get to that level of education, I I presume that all of this gets even trickier uh, uh, have we seen uh, yeah. a, an, any any proposals similar to the elementary schools for this level of education? I mean, I think certainly there's a pressure on middle schools and high schools to reopen uh, because 
we know that that's one of the places where students can most effectively learn. And many parents also still depend on uh, the support that their children get uh, at school, uh, whether that's for food or whether that's for learning support as well, uh, especially parents of children with disabilities who may not be able to provide that kind of support at home. Uh, but at the same time, the challenges, the logistical challenges of reopening safely for middle schools and for high schools are so much more complicated than they would be at the elementary school level because of that mixing that you were talking about. If you have Essentially, we know from, from network research uh, that if you have students even a tiny bit mixing across classrooms, that exponentially uh, increases the likelihood of spread uh, with these kinds of diseases because essentially by the time you have gone through two or three periods of the day, you've contacted almost everyone in the school um, or you have some sort of overlap in your network uh, with almost everyone. And so it increases instead of if someone in the school does get the virus in an elementary school or in a preschool setting, for example, you might be able to just close down that classroom, send those kids home, but keep the rest of the school operational. In a middle or high school environment, the chances of that happening, if someone comes down with it, it, it that the number of people potentially exposed is so much greater and it makes it much more difficult uh, to imagine opening middle schools and high schools long-term um, as opposed to just short-term instead. Man, this is this is a crazy uh, a, a crazy situation because you know certainly for middle schools and high schools you have students that are beyond daycare age so theoretically they could even probably stay at uh you know at 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 the house for for you know longer or safer than let's say a elementary school kid obviously could but uh, uh similarly I could I could see or I can hear you know the emails being typed now from parents of kids of that age saying, well, then then when is it safe? I mean, and, and to that question, I think we don't really know when it will be safe. And that's in part because we as a society have not made the commitment and certainly our, our government leaders have not made the commitment to create the conditions where it's even possible to think about a date where things could be safe. I think we almost have to back up a step and say, if the priority should be opening schools, given the tremendous pressure we place on schools to solve all of these other social problems, and given how critical uh, schools are for our economy and for the future of our society, we should be doing everything possible uh, to prioritize opening schools. But the first thing to do before we do that is to shut down everything else, uh, bars, movie theaters, restaurants, anything that is not essential to reopening schools, if we close those down, if we kept everyone home, um, if we put in place things like uh, kind of provided grocery delivery so that people don't even have to go to the grocery store uh, to be able to get the things that their families need, if we really took seriously the pandemic and the need to stay home and the need to uh, close down as much as possible and put in place the financial protections for families and for workers that they would need given those closures, uh, we could potentially open schools much more quickly and much more fully uh, than we can with this very piecemeal, uh, very half-hearted effort uh, that our society has put into actually stopping the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and and I think that, that you have offered some big systemic changes uh and and i i definitely sympathize with parents uh who you know will not be able to wait for changes that big right when they got to figure out what they're what, you know where they're even going to encourage their kids to go in a month and a half maybe even less in some counties 
Absolutely. I mean, we're certainly putting parents in this impossible position where they have to make a decision, send your kid to an unsafe school or keep them home. Uh, And I would argue that one thing that often gets overlooked in this conversation is that parents, especially when they work collectively and especially when they have resources, can put pressure on policymakers to make fairly rapid change. Uh, Oftentimes that pressure is used to reinforce the inequalities in society and in schools, pushing for things like district boundaries that maintain segregation or pushing for things like tracking programs or gifted programs that maintain inequalities within schools. But I would argue that if parents are would be willing, and especially privileged parents, would be willing to, to, to reorient the kinds of efforts that they are putting into forming things like pandemic pods and put that toward calling their legislators, talking to their local school board officials, saying, hey, maybe we should delay the start of the opening so that we can leave time to pressure Congress for more funding for education to do this well or to make sure that students have the resources that they need. Uh, And then calling those legislators and, and saying, this is what we need to make schools either safe enough to open or to be able to get students the support and the resources that they need uh, to learn from home effectively. Uh, And so I think kind of parents recognizing their own power, um, especially when they're working collectively, would be a better option. Um, But at the same time, I understand that parents need childcare and that they need things like social interaction for their kids. And so I think decoupling the the learning piece of, of things like pandemic pods uh, from the childcare aspect and from the social aspect uh, of those kinds of solutions is critical for maintaining a more equitable solution, for making sure that kids can get the kinds of interactions that they need and that uh, parents can get the childcare that they need, possibly through co-ops or through social interactions or social pods, uh, but avoiding solutions that would pull kids out of public schools and avoiding solutions that would pull uh, teachers out of schools as well to serve as private tutors for families instead. Uh, anyone who's followed the public education issues knows that very little gets done uh, uh, without at least the influence of teachers unions uh, around the country. Where have teachers unions tended to lean on these issues of reopening? I mean, I think teachers rightfully are very concerned about the health risks uh, to their te- to, to teach to themselves um, and to the, the the families of all of those. Uh, involved in the schooling endeavor. Um, And that is completely understandable, especially given the way that COVID risks seem to increase with age. At the same time, I think teachers are very aware that the the service that they provide to society and to their students is critical. They understand that if their students are not physically in school, that it will be harder for them to learn. Uh, They understand that it will be harder for uh, the most uh, most marginalized and most vulnerable students uh, in our society to get the the food and the care and the attention that they need if schools are not open. Uh, and so I, I think that teachers are aware of those that tension um, between keeping themselves and keeping their families and keeping students' families safe, um, but also understanding the the value and the importance of the service that they provide. So there's no there's there doesn't seem to be any uh, a uniting thread to say teachers stay home or or let's let's soldier on and and understand that this is going to be less safe than we wanted to but this needs to happen. I mean I think in places where unions are most powerful we have seen a push toward moving classes online. 
um, or at least moving them more online with possibly things like hybrid options uh, for students being on, on campus in some places. At the same time, I think teachers are, are right, for, right to recognize that, that moving classes online, while it may be physically safer in terms of the health risks, also creates tremendous challenges for teachers, um, especially if those hybrid options are forcing some teachers to teach in person and allowing other teachers to stay home. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty right now and discussions among teachers and among school boards about uh, which teachers should be allowed to stay home or teach online. Do they hire a private company to handle the online learning or do they repurpose teachers that are already within the public school system? Uh, who has the same, is it based on seniority who gets to decide or is it teachers with health risks or at the highest health risks? There's so many questions, uh, especially when you create that added uncertainty and inequality. Are teachers, for example, being asked to teach simultaneously uh, online and in person and what kinds of added burdens does that create for teachers as well? I mean, I think there's there's no clear-cut answer um, in terms of what is best for teachers or what is best for students. I think there's there's clear answers in terms of the health risks uh, that online at this point, given the lack of funding for opening schools safely, uh, would be the safest option for teachers and for students and for their families. Um, but that given all of the other challenges and given the possible inequities around that, it, it, it's complicated. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of this until we got to this point in the conversation, but uh, one of the conversations that's happening in business and probably most colorfully in sports is the idea that any kind of collectively bargained deal between operators and employees might be affected by the employees not delivering what they have collectively bargained that they would in physical service. And so that's why... A lot of the sports leagues are getting back, not necessarily because they think it's the best uh, idea in the world, but because they want to maintain, at least on the bare minimum, their collectively bargained agreement with owners and management. Uh, is there any sense that for uh, you know teachers unions that have collectively bargained with their counties, uh, their, their, their education school boards, that them not showing up to work uh, is something that could affect their jobs or at least the protections that they had collectively bargained? Absolutely. I think teachers' contracts vary so much from community to community. Uh, there's, there are school boards uh, that have negotiated contracts with teachers where the union can't even negotiate working conditions, can only negotiate salary. And so for those teachers, they have very little leverage even to demand uh, safe working conditions. In some places, those kinds of safe working conditions are part of bargaining agreements, but that's not the case everywhere. Um, and so thinking about what leverage do they have built into their contracts and what risks do they face if they try to push back. And for given the current economy right now, I think it's, it's very understandable uh, that teachers would be very wary of pushing too hard, especially if they don't have the kinds of contracts that give them leverage to negotiate around safe working conditions uh, for themselves and for their families. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be <laughs> it's a lot of very, very, very tough decisions that I think people are going to go in uh, uh, into making at like a 51, 49% decision rate. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot of conflicting issues that people are going to have to navigate, not only teachers, but also parents and also workers throughout the schools. But we are more educated on it because of our guest, Jessica Calarco. She is an associate professor of sociology at Indiana University and studies inequalities in education and family life. She is the author 
of negotiating opportunities, how the middle class secures advantages in schools, and a field guide to grad school, uncovering the hidden curriculum. Find her on Twitter, at Jessica Calarco. Uh, and we thank her for showing up on this show. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you for having me. It was a great discussion. I appreciate your time. I think that Jessica brought up a really good point, which is sort of the catch-all that schools have been uh, put into in this current era where they're kind of doing everything basically during the workday for parents. And that's really hard these days. So I think that that's, um, there's some important takeaways from her in terms of what the U.S. is using school for, which is kind of everything from the hours of around 8 a.m. to 3, 4, or 5 p.m. Yeah, and it's it's hard, no matter what you think of it, it's it's hard to go away from it in in an instant. And that's basically what, you know, we, we've we've had to do to rethink a lot of this kind of stuff is that the, the economies sort of run at, at, between those hours and schools are a huge part of it. You can understand why they are intertwined. For sure, for sure. And in addition, the fact that every school population in different parts of the country is also different. So yeah. there isn't going to be a fully one size fits all solution for all communities everywhere. Uh, but at the same time, they have all been asked to do extraordinary things, even without a pandemic. And now we're sort of adding a really, really, really challenging layer on top of this cake. Yeah. And then the pandemic's not the same everywhere, right? <laughs> like it, it, it has the same baseline threat, but some places it is more of a clear and present danger than others. And one of those places is Florida, my home state, which is where we're going to go to speak to some people that are near and dear to my heart, because not only are the kids that they are parenting a, a, a two and four year old, but also they're my nephew and niece, because we're about to talk to my brother and sister-in-law, Eric and Carolyn Young are the hosts of the Young Family Podcast. They joined us from Orlando, not only to talk about the Florida of it all, their own choices in terms of where they're going to send their uh, a pre-kindergartner, but also the conversations that they've had with other parents in the process of doing their own parenting podcast. Who can't quite imagine being in Florida right now? Welcome to the show, Eric and Carolyn. Well, hello there. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, so... You guys are my literal family uh, uh, because you are my, my brother and sister-in-law. You do the Young Family Podcast, and you are based in Orlando, Florida. So let's start with the Orlando of it all. Florida, a bit of a roller coaster ride in terms of COVID uh, and mm -hmm. it getting worse later in the summer, I'm sure, was quite a complicating factor as not only school, but, but daycare for, for, uh, your son and daughter, my nephew and niece became mm -hmm. a, a bigger thing. Can you just talk about watching this whole process unfold while you're trying to figure out, uh, uh where to put the kids and, and they're not school age yet, but putting yourself in the position of, well, what if this keeps going on? Well, I'll start, but I'm going to throw it to you pretty quickly, TBC, because my take on it was pretty one dimensional. When our daycare reopened, I was all on board, all in on putting the kids back in. 
Um, they were doing a really great job before it closed in the first place. Uh, then when things started to reopen just around the country, uh, our daycare reopened. And then when things started to spike here in the state of Florida, uh, they never really got any requirement to shut down. So they didn't. And um, I've always been on board with uh, having them there because I think that they're very safe there. Now, uh, my uh, my partner here, she had a more complicated take on the whole situation. So what what was that like for you, TBC? Well, just for an FYI, our children are two and four. So we have our son going into VPK in a couple of weeks and then kindergarten next year. And um, Orlando is a is a huge city. And so you have different counties and like the surrounding areas with all kinds of different views about what they think is right and what they think is, you know, should happen, you know, and it has been giving me so much anxiety, even trying to figure out what we would do, you know, with <laughs> um, our children, what's the right thing to do. You know, I am currently still furloughed, so I hold a lot of guilt um, with all the different up and down and all the changes. But ultimately, we did put Jackson back in daycare because um, I think for one, for my sanity and yeah. two, to help prepare him for the VPK school year. And with that, Riley goes two days a week. Uh, so there are some days where both of them are back in school, but uh, Riley's a little bit younger, so there's less of that urgency there for her to be in a formal school-type environment. And uh, so that's why we didn't think that it was as necessary for her to be there five days of the week, but Jackson is. And uh, again, I think that even through the the you know the surge in the COVID cases here in Central Florida, I've felt like the children are nothing but safe in that uh, daycare facility specifically. So uh, uh, and and just uh, for for folks that don't have kids, VPK is is pre kindergarten, so it's like the just like like, like the the structure of school that the you know kids uh, Jackson's age get before they are formally kind of on the the public school track. Yeah, so it's a voluntary uh, pre-kindergarten. Pre okay. It just helps. Uh, it's a, a free program uh, for four-year-olds to help prepare them for kindergarten. And that's true. I, I, I know that it's you know uniquely called that here in the state of Florida. There might be other states with like similar kind of programs, but that you know that's what it is in Florida. And honestly, I don't even know if how many other states it's in. I mean, I know that a bunch of kids that I went to school with all went to pre-K. I don't remember going to pre-K. I mean, I guess I don't really, really remember kindergarten. Did you Did you go to pre-K, Eric? I No. I don't I, think no, so No, I'm going to say it's a definite no. I but would think you guys would because your mom always said that part of the reason why you went to kindergarten, like especially for you being an August birthday, was because she needed you to go somewhere. So that must have, oh, you know what it was? It was because uh, before I started in kindergarten, we were in California. And yeah. I bet you California, at least mm. at the time, didn't have- I know we were definitely in daycare. There was definitely a moment yeah. of, of, of us getting dropped off because uh, uh, mom needed to work. Oh yeah. Yeah. So so basically if we would have came to Florida earlier on in life, then 100% we're in- We in, definitely would have uh, been in pre-K. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you guys are in a very unique position because you do a podcast and you are constantly talking to other parents for many, many reasons before this whole COVID thing broke out. But now more so, and even now I would say this is probably the, the most fevered pitch that parents have kind of been 
debating and worried and, and weighing all the options, uh, please explain to us the tenor of your listenership as they wrestle with these issues. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, you have to understand that just basically like our circle of like, you know, parents, uh, you know, kind of overlaps with the listenership. So a lot of it is just, you know, conversations that are happening here in state of Florida with people with kids around our age uh, or our kids ages. And, um, I mean, I think that what the, at least the trend that I've noticed on top of, you know, people uh, having a difficult time struggling with whether or not to send their kids back given the regulations um, was like the procrastination of the decision. I don't know if you noticed that as much, but basically like there were deadlines that the schools were giving the families and the families were for whatever reason, um, waiting until the last possible moment <laughs> to make those decisions. I think you wait to the last possible moment because you're hoping that something that they have, you know, said is going to change. They're hoping for something better or something that makes them feel more comfortable. Right. So or, it's like if, if you can hold out as long as you can, you know, it's just let me see, you know, before I make that decision, if anything, you know, if I feel fully comfortable. Yeah, exactly. So. You know, I mean, that's what I noticed in the last two weeks, especially just, you know, last week, because here in Orange County, uh, schools started yesterday. And so it was just <laughs> like a couple of days before that, that people had to like hand in their final decisions. And, and you're right. That's exactly how I would describe it was like families were just like waiting until the last minute. And there was this like massive crescendo of people like, you know, trying to to make that decision, whether they were waiting for new information or they seriously were just struggling with it that hard. Um, and then, you know, now we've kind of got a little bit of a release because families have made their decisions. And in our last episode of the Young Family Podcast, the big like takeaway from the interview that we did with one of the parents that was struggling with that was like, once you make that decision, no matter what it is, because no decision is perfect and they all kind of stink, to be honest with you, um, you're going to feel better because then you just yeah. aren't doing the back and forth and the waiting and, you know, like hoping that the school has some better option and blah, blah, blah. It's just better to, you know, commit to something and move on. I, I want to highlight something that Carolyn said a, a little bit ago, which is the nature of where you live. Uh, this is a politics podcast, so let's get political with it. Orange County yeah. is a swing state or Orange County is a swing county. It, it is yeah. a crucial county. It is part of uh, the collection of counties that is referred to as the I-4 corridor, I-4 being the highway that connects Tampa to the uh, east coast of Florida. And there are very passionate opinions because there's a, a large liberal uh, uh, contingent of Florida voters there. And then there's a lot of very passionate uh, uh, conservative voters. Have you seen yourselves either with your listenerships or with your circle of friends kind of political fights that sort of break out amongst parent groups on political lines i know that for me i have a good friend of mine who um you know wants to send her her child to an in-person school and has kind of gotten into um i guess like the front desk if you will over the phone kind of questioning some of the decisions that have been made, um, maybe being a little bit political heavy with, you know, kind of questioning some of, um, 
I guess their decision or decision or their choices, you know, just for example, the, um, the, the teachers have the option to take off their mask, but the, the students don't. Yeah. And she, and she's saying, well, if the teacher has the option and, and my child's in a desk, you know, six feet apart and you're making him have this like, you know, plexiglass around him. Why can't he take off his mask? Why can't he breathe for a second? And, you know, they don't really have, you know, the answer. Their answer is, well, you know, your your president is is making schools open. And she's like, OK, well, maybe. But um, you are the Wait, one that was who that is... was the answer. The answer was uh, talk to your president. Elevate this to my That's manager. Spicy. The, the, <laughs> I didn't hear that. The, the school said, well, your president is, is having um, <laughs> is, is, is requiring us to open schools. And she's like, yes, but you your school is the one who is basically making these mandates. He's mm-hmm. not making these mandates. He's just saying, come up with like a good solution and, you know, open the school. So, Justin, I would say I've, um, you know, that's definitely been like the minority of my experiences, um, yeah. like that um, people have been struggling with these decisions because of their political beliefs. Um, I think that this is one of those situations where um, it's not that you like consciously put your political beliefs aside in order to make this decision, but like when your children are involved other elements are going to kind of rise to the top on what you're going to, uh, you know, to base your decision on. So for instance, like a lot of the people that I, or the parents that I've talked to about this, even though I might have insight into what their political stance may be, um, I'm often finding that they, their decision on what to do with their child isn't always consistent with that, of what you would think that a conservative parent would want to send their kids and whatever. So um, I think that in this situation, it, it is one of those things where your politics are not necessarily the strongest guiding factor in this decision. But again, that's just been in the conversations that I've had. Yeah, you know, it, it's so bizarre that this has been politicized to me, mostly because it's such a local thing. Like, it's about right. whether or not you trust your school. It's about whether or not you trust your county. It's about whether or not you trust your kids. It's about yeah. whether or not, you know, you how old they are, whether or not you you think that that maybe, I mean, I've heard some parents that are like, hey, it, it was kind of a, a revelatory experience for us to realize while our kids were, were tele-learning that there's only an hour and a half of actual schooling that happens at school. And so mm-hmm. maybe we'll figure <laughs> out something else. Uh, but it, it it's something that is like politicizing everything to me is kind of a ridiculous concept because they're more complicated, but I can't think of a more complicated issue than parenting. People get right. over fights over whether or not you should be able to have snacks, let alone whether or not there's like a, 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 a pandemic that's going to affect or, or, or kill your child. That, that seems like the most personal thing possible. And there's like so much judgment, like with your decision that you kind of feel as a parent, at least for me, um, cause I also suffer, you know, with like anxiety, it's like feeling that judgment and that pressure about making the right decision. And then you, you, you kind of hear all these conspiracies and, and, you know, this opinion and that opinion. And, and then it's kind of all kind of feeling really heavy on your shoulders. It's like, I don't know what to do. I, I would say um, just take the politi- the politicization of this situation with a grain of salt. 
because I think that when it really, when the rubber hits the road, um, it's it's not true. I just, I think that the, the families are, are, like you said, this is a decision to be made at the smallest scale possible. It is your family. This yeah. is not city government. This is not even state or certainly not federal government. This is your family. And so, um, you know, I, I, I do think I, I see the narrative of this being politicized. Um, I acknowledge that it's happening to a degree, but I yeah. think when you talk to the families, it's it's just not the primary factor that's guiding these decisions. And yet it is something that this decision can only be so private, right? Because yeah. your, your kids and where they're going to school and whether or not they're there in the house, like that is a decision. It's not like a voting booth where you can vote for who you want and you can keep it quiet you or you can, off or you can <laughs> talk about it on Facebook, but like you can just kind of do what you want. This is something where if there is a judgment to be made, there's really not a lot of places to, to hide with it. You, you have to own it on one way or another, which is I'm sure why Eric, you started things off by saying, I'm planting my flag. The kid should be in daycare and that's it. Like I'm just letting you know, that's where I'm at. Yeah, but, you know, so to, to that point specifically, if Jackson were going into kindergarten this year, I don't know exactly what I would choose. And I don't know if I'd feel uh, right about sending him. But again, it would come down to, you know, the the menu of options that we were presented with. And all of that is just hypothetical. But to your point from earlier, I think that speaks a lot to what Carolyn was just talking about, was that, you know, uh, even with choosing to put our kids in daycare, we have to wear that decision on our sleeve. And I think that Carolyn, you know, with uh, being afflicted by anxiety, um, feels that judgment extra hard. And even, you know, somebody who isn't would also still have to just like own that decision and walk around with it. I think that part of the reason why I feel so much pressure with our decision to put him in daycare is because the children are, are not required to wear masks. Yeah. And probably so, because they're four year olds, right? <laughs> like, well, like, exactly. <laughs> but if you go to like, if you go to any of like the local theme parks here in Orlando, if you go to the grocery store, him being like three, four, they want those children wearing masks. We went to the Orlando Science Center last week. Riley was wearing a mask and Jackson was wearing a mask because that's what they wanted. And that's what they, you know, were, were recommending. That, that seems like a special circle of hell to try to keep a mask <laughs> on a two year old. Well, it really was because, you know, they're like slipping, they're talking, you know, they're pulling at it. I mean, it's like, you know, cover your nose or, you know, pick up the mask. It really is a, a chore. Oh, yeah. The whole time <laughs> that we were there at the Science Center, I was just you know, telling everyone, I was like, just lower your expectations with Riley. Uh, you know, who's two? And actually, we learned halfway through the trip that because she's two, she was really not required. Sure. Of course, they prefer it. But, um, uh, you know, and that was actually something else that I, I wanted to speak about. And I don't know if this is jumping into a next question. But um, as far as these guidelines go, uh, you know, especially for the really early grades, like the kindergartners, you know, I understand that the schools need to put them in place. They need to try to enforce them. And parents are making decisions based on them being real things. But come on, man. For an entire school year, you're going to keep these five-year-olds in masks and, and six I, feet and apart? In isolation. It's, it, it, we're not talking about reality. <laughs> like, is that really... You think that's going to be a thing? That's not what's going to happen. I, I think that there has been... 
And I, I do want to be clear for everybody listening. What, what Eric is saying is that this is not realistic. Not that it's not the best idea. If everything could work out that way, sure, that would be ideal. But right. you, have to, you have to make laws that are realistic and laws and or guidelines or whatever right, the rules right. of the road are that are to be followed and not just something that we're going to immediately five seconds in realize, oh, wait, this is not going to unsustainable. This is unsustainable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well then that does lead me to my next question, which is you guys just got done with an interview with somebody that homeschools, uh, uh, their kids. Uh, what was that perspective like in terms of the world of, of, of COVID that, you know, for a lot of parents throughout, you know, when, when we were growing up, homeschooling was something that was, I think thought of mostly as a religious thing, at least in my perspective, uh, that, that, uh, it was kids that, that parents who didn't agree with the school system. Now it seems to have broadened out a lot more, uh, in the intervening years since I was in school and has kind of like taken on a life of its own here in COVID world. Uh, what was the perspective of the homeschool, uh, uh, parent that you spoke to? Well, she was always, um, she never thought she would be a homeschool mom. And she was all gung-ho about um, sending her kid to, uh, to school. He, he was always willing to wear a mask. So, I mean, she was lucky in that regard. But I think that her biggest reason to kind of bringing him into a homeschool situation was because of the, uh, part of it was the isolation. And then I think part of it was because her youngest child was in the NICU right after birth. And I think kind of as like a precautionary thing, she decided mm. to just kind of stay on the safe side and not have her son exposed to, you know, other people. And I had another friend who we didn't interview, um, who I thought was given the best option. And if I lived anywhere, this is kind of the option that I wish that I had. But she also ultimately chose to, to homeschool was, you would have a nine to 12 in-person school. So um, they did have to wear a mask, but you at least got that interaction with um, a real teacher in a classroom setting. And then, you know, you picked up the kids for lunch and for kind of, I guess, the remainder of the day for homeschool. And I thought that that was kind of like the best of both worlds because, you know, I don't like for me as much as it makes me so sad that that potentially could be my child next year, like with the mask, with the isolation. I mean, if I had a job and I had no choice or That's my just the sanity way to, go. To, to, yeah. to teach somebody all day long, I just don't know if that, you know, is realistic for, for me and quite frankly, our relationship. Yeah, that's that's definitely what I've been observing as well as, um, you know, I, I mean, there are parents and families that are choosing to homeschool the younger children. Uh, so especially, you know, these are both uh, families with kindergartners that we're talking about. So I think the trend, if I can really like kind of uh, characterize it in any way, is like uh, definitely families with uh, kindergartners are leaning towards homeschooling. And then if you've got a kid that's like, you know, eight, nine, like kind of in those higher elementary years, um, they're pretty much just going for it. And, you know, just because like under any circumstances, the kids would just rather be with their friends. Yeah. Even if it's like, you know, we're all surrounded by plexiglass and in isolation bubbles, 
but like I get to leave my house and be in the same facility with my friends, like the older kids are doing that. Um, also, I think specifically for the the uh, the mother that we interviewed, she was not too thrilled with the uh, the county's virtual option, which seemed a little bit unrealistic about keeping a five year old kid on a computer for eight hours. And so it was eight hours. It was yeah, it was a synchronous learning model where so you had to be on a Zoom call with your class the whole day. And and she's like, well, also that's not realistic. <laughs> so yeah, thanks for a non-option because that is just ridiculous. Wow. And uh, so then it really came down to basically homeschool or brick and mortar. And as uh, as Carolyn mentioned, you know, she just has a, a high risk two-year-old child at home, so she doesn't even want to take that risk of sending the kid to uh, to school to potentially bring something back. Yeah, that was a wrap. All right, last question. And I want to let everybody listening understand the commitment that the young family has to living their lives in public as uh, a, a multiple podcast family that I have not asked this question to my brother and my sister-in-law about my niece and nephew in, in private. I will ask it first to them <laughs> in public so you can That's all terrifying. enjoy it. Have you thought seriously about homeschooling uh, uh, Jackson beyond this year, considering even, let's say, that this is a situation where uh, uh, we are dealing with a portion of the coronavirus or there's a flare-up in Florida or the world is just different past, uh, past now? Is this something that is actively on your mind? Take it away, TBC. Uh, yeah, it is. And um, again, I never thought it would be on any part of my mind, honestly. But um, I've kind of casually talked to Eric about, you know, if I do lose my job, um, you know, what will we do? Like, do I do I get a job? Because I was like, kindergarten is just one year away. So we kind of have to think about, is it worth me getting a job? Or do I just kind of begin to focus on teaching Jackson at home and preparing him for like, you know, like the later years. And so we have begun to, to really like think about it. And it kind of like the pressure of like all my friends are, are kind of deciding to do that. And I'm home. It's not like I'm, you know, I'm currently home. So it's like, you know, what, what would my excuse be <laughs> besides? Um, so I get a little impatient just in general, when I start to review things with Jackson at home or I start to teach him things and he gets frustrated and I get frustrated and I kind of like think to myself, could I do this, you know, all day, every day? And that's, that's a serious thought, Eric. Um, this is why Carolyn completes me is because she thinks about things in the future. Someone, someone <laughs> <can do> it. <laughs> so that pretty much sums up where my head's at about one year from now. No, but this, this is my, this is my whole thing Yeah, is, um, so Carolyn is very much into assessing hypotheticals. Whereas <laughs> I am, I, I, I think that there's just better things that we can do with our time. Uh, because I, 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 the core of what I'm getting at is we just don't know what next year is going to look like in so many ways. Yeah. Uh, and that is, um, re regarding our employment. Uh, it's regarding 
you know, even, I mean, dude, if one year from now this is still heavily impacting uh, the way that public schools are taught, then, I mean, what kind of emergence are we going to see of other alternatives over the course of one year? So it's like, then what is the menu of options going to look like? And and it's like, so why am I going to spend my time assessing what I would do this year when next year is just going to look so drastically different? And so I'm not saying that it's going to be a simple decision or that it's going to be just like normal next year. Um, but because I have absolutely no clue what it's going to look like, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm just deferring until then when we have a decision to make and we have options. But uh, certainly uh, what this has done uh, has, you know, just like all of these parents, it's opened up the possibility of homeschooling in a, you know, in a situation where it never, ever would have crossed our minds, you know, at all ever before in our lives. And so now, yeah, we it could be it could be as well as, you know, the you know, the next revolution of, you know, virtual online school could be. So I, I have no idea. This is how, you know, dear listener, that Eric and I are brothers, because it was only once both uh, and you're listening to this in audio. You can't see it in video, but we're looking at each other in video when Eric and Carolyn looked at each other as I was asking that last question that it dawned on me that I know I haven't asked them in private. I'm not aware of how long (laughs) they've talked to each other about it. So that is the kind of vulnerability that we are giving here because either Eric or I are capable of thinking more than five seconds ahead of where we are uh, in the world. Uh, And that's that's, that's why, that kind of honesty is why you are all going to have to go and subscribe to the Young Family Podcast, uh, uh, which is available on all platforms. Can you guys talk just a little bit more about what people hear on that show? Uh, a lot of vulnerability, a lot of telling it like it is. Uh, you know, parenting's hard. We're not perfect. And uh, we want to basically be a sounding board for people that can relate to that. But obviously, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good fun time for uh, all the non-parents out there as well. TBC, how would you characterize our show? Yeah, I think we try to be as real as possible because, like you said, parenting is no joke and it is challenging. And we try to bring a little bit of uh, humor um, into the joy and struggles that we, you know, all endure with children. And you can find us at bit.ly slash young family podcast. Look at Indeed. that plug. I love it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you got to get the plug in. Eric and Carolyn, thank you guys so much for joining us. Bye. Thank you, bud. So I think your brother and sister-in-law uh, definitely have been approaching the challenges as well as anybody could. Uh, things are definitely a little bit different here in that in the Bay Area, nothing's really open for taking your two and four year old to do during the day. So uh, I'm happy for them that they have that option. Um, but also, I think one thing that comes up is how many choices they have to make. And I think clearly um, she sort of is bring, bearing the brunt of it in having to make those decisions about whether to send the kids back to daycare or pre-K or kindergarten Um, And it's a lot. I mean, we're making a lot of decisions every day. And that's a big one to have to think about that we didn't have to think about a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. And and what I really was struck by in that interview was just how much psychic damage is kind of being done to the parrots. And Carolyn, I think, is is just a great at sort of putting that out there and, and not being afraid to be vulnerable. But 
there's so many like there, there there is a fighter pilot's worth of immediate decisions that need to be made consequential decisions that it's easy to get lost the like oh am i doing the right thing am i harming my child because i just made this decision yeah i think um it's kind of easier as a parent i'll say globally you know to make decisions for yourself and it's always a little bit harder to make them for your kids right so i can say hey i'm willing to go out without a mask on a walk where i don't think i'll see anyone um but when you decide for your kid suddenly there's sort of extra layers of what that means like oh am i damaging them by putting them in a school where they're wearing masks all the time or is it worse to be in a school where they're never wearing masks and they might get who knows what. So I think that that piles on and piles on and piles on even more when you're trying to make decisions for one, two, three, or more other human beings who are in your charge. Yeah. But, but also you can't beat yourself up too much, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. And I think that one thing um, many parents are learning to do in this pandemic is to lower the bar. (laughs) So, you know, there's been a lot more, uh, pizza nights and there's been a lot more, (laughs) um, you know, uh, screen time or there's been a lot more of a lot of things. And so I think that, um, all parents are kind of dealing with that level where they just have to realize that this is not the normal world and your normal sort of ideals kind of have to get put aside. And you also have to have some ability to take care of yourself too. And I guess in terms of the schooling, you can't worry too much that, kids aren't getting maybe the level of, of education that you would hope. For sure. I would say that's another area. Lower the bar, America. I know that everyone <laughs> thinks the bar is really low for education, but in particular, especially for young kids right now, and I say this as the parent of a, a rising first grader who can't read yet, you know, it's okay. It's okay. That's my like, it, it's horrible, obviously, that this is happening, but it's okay if your kid is not, quote, where they should be. It's okay if they're quote unquote behind. Um, it'll all work out. Like kids will yeah. learn. You're not responsible for their well-being for the rest of their life. You're just responsible for them. Like today, tomorrow, this coming year, let's leave it at that. And speaking of existential dread, let's now turn our eyes to Congress because obviously there is a lot of news coverage on the COVID relief bill that has been long negotiated should have probably been negotiated and passed some point between now and March when the last one was, but at least as of this recording on August 14th, it has not. Uh, And we have some experts on to talk about what hopefully will come in that bill in terms of the money needed to provide some of the options for parents and Uh, uh, just kids in general. They are Sarah Reber. She is a David M. Rubenstein Fellow at the Brookings Institution and Associate Professor of Public Policy at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs, and Nora Gordon. She's an Associate Professor at the Georgetown University McCourt School of Public Policy. She's also the co-author of Common Sense Evidence, the Education Leader's Guide to Using Data and Research, which will be published by Harvard Education Press in August and is available for pre-order now. Go ahead on uh, Amazon to get that. She's on Twitter as well. Nora E. Gordon is where you find her. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. 
All right. Uh, on, on, on the minds of parents everywhere uh, and, and certainly listening to us right now uh, is exactly what kind of guidelines they should be expecting, whether or not that is in or out of line with what they are being told by their local school options and whether or not they should be pushing for something else. So let's start with this. Uh, uh, Sarah, what kind of specific recommendations both to city, state, and county school boards uh, should we be asking for? Yeah, so I think, you know, the work we've done is more related to how to pay for all this, which uh, we could talk more about. But I think the the most important thing in terms of opening schools is to get the pandemic under control so that the public health situation is improved and community spread is reduced. And um, that will allow schools, um, hopefully uh, before too long, to open uh, to open safely. And that's really going to vary a lot um, depending on the location. And, you know, what what we, um, uh, you know, what we've been writing about is, is, is how to pay for all of this. And, um, and I think, you know, whatever they do, they're going to need uh, more money. But I think uh, <laughs> Nora has something to add. Yeah. Yeah, I would just add that um, what we're hearing from superintendents, you know, we have over 13,000 school districts in the country. And many of those superintendents are having to make these individual decisions and uh, with guidance from all different kinds of places. Um, I think that th these are, you know, decisions that uh, they uh, honestly would rather have a public health professional make in many cases. And I was just doing a webinar earlier this week that people can see at the Urban Institute if they want to watch a recording. But you know, the superintendent of the Dallas Independent School District was talking about how his district is managing guidance that they're getting um, from their county health department, from their state education agency, the CDC, and executive orders from their governor. So that <laughs> gives, you know, sort of one example of everyone is in the mix here and um, some of these recommendations of course are uh, you know at, at odds with one another and it's really challenging for superintendents to handle this so so let's go ahead and and look at at what you guys have done the most research on which is how to pay for some of this when, when we talk about the increase in cost and bringing kids back to school what are we talking about what what is what is costing money so I think there's been a lot of focus on things like cleaning or um, PPE or things like that in terms of increased costs, but uh, there's a few different things going on. So, you know, one is, of course, uh, there needs to be more distancing if school is in person or if uh, there's a remote instruction, school, school districts need to be buying additional equipment, they need to... Um, by curriculum, they need to do training if the quality of that uh, instruction is going to be high. So, and then if they're in a hybrid modality, that's um, uh, that's especially tricky because they need to be doing both at the same time. So, there there are a lot of new costs that are kind of obviously related to the public health situation. But I think one of the things that's been kind of overlooked is is really just the um, the staffing. So, the you you need to probably have more adults per child um, to pull off a lot of these approaches. So if you're going to have 
smaller group sizes for in-person instruction, or frankly, if you're going to do effective remote instruction, you need to have uh, a smaller group size. So a lot of the additional costs would be related to staffing. And I would also add here that aside from these additional costs, staffing is the biggest cost that school districts face normally. And so even if many people are making statements like, oh, well, remote instruction should cost less because you don't need to have the building open and you're saving on all of those costs, um, but school districts spend most of their money on their staff and they still need to do that when they're operating remotely um, and their revenue from the states is drying up. So even aside from all of these other pieces, there's just this kind of very basic problem that is similar to what we saw in the Great Recession um, where there wasn't a cost change, but you have this big revenue shock. You know, that is something that I've noticed in some of our conversation and, and, you know, from the beginning of this pandemic, I've always thought that, you know, what if, if, if you actually watch closely, we are getting a very, very, very real time lesson in economics. Yeah, as, as we watch which businesses stay open, which businesses will be closing, uh, how they make their money when all of a sudden their revenue source is dry. We're going to see what goes away first. And schools would seem to me to be no different and an argument to say, oh, well, you should not be spending as much money if your building is closed seems a little silly to me because you're still paying rent and you still probably have to keep some amount of upkeep on it. It's not like it, it just is is something that you can totally have uh, uh, be devoid of any kind of uh, money going into it. And that even that doesn't even scratch the surface of what happens with distance learning. So, Sarah, let me ask you this. When, when distance learning seems to be the safer option, how do we manage things like the digital divide, kids without the kind of equipment, let alone internet, for some of these uh, uh, things that are required? Uh, and, and then even school lunches, which a lot of students depend on as a, a reliable meal. Yeah, so you, you raise a couple points there. So first of all, yes, absolutely. The, um the, the buildings are still there and need to be um, maintained, as, as Nora mentioned. And, and a, another aspect related to that is that you don't necessarily want to be laying off a bunch of people in the middle of a recession because that could be contractionary and you know, cause the recession to go on longer. So that's, that's uh, one thing. And then the question, is, you know, if it's not safe to, um, to be in school buildings, how do you address these, um, these pre-existing inequalities? And I think you know, it's, it's difficult and um, that these inequalities exist uh, during regular normal times. And uh, one thing that's happening is we're just sort of shining new light on them. Um, but I think districts need to, um, and schools need to be creative and uh, in how they provide remote instruction. So, you know, one thing they can do is try to, um, uh, try to make sure that everybody does have access uh, to the internet and the e-rate the e program is a federal program that tries to help with that. Um, and then the other thing is to consider other types of approaches to remote, um, to remote learning. And uh, you don't necessarily have to use, um, uh, have to use internet. There, there are other, other ways to reach out to kids via TV, via um uh, via phone. And, you know, so I think uh, schools need to just really be creative and consider how to serve um, 
their particular populations. And the aid that the federal aid that, you know, we argue is desperately needed for schools should come in a way that's flexible so that uh, schools can use different approaches based on their needs. And I would support, you know, obviously we need to have more money for E-rate and more flexibility in E-rate, but it's not as if the technology side alone is going to eliminate these inequities in distance learning because even, you know, some of these things actually are pretty cheap relatively, you know, think of things like Chromebook distribution or something um, compared, compared to other costs that schools face. That's not the big problem. I think the big problem is you take, you know, a six-year-old and you, you can't just put the six-year-old in front of the Chromebook for the day and expect that to work without an adult in the household supervising that. And that's where um, a lot of, you know, th there is going to be unequal access to distance learning. If you have um, fewer kids, uh, that, you know, if you have each adult responsible for fewer kids, it's going to be much easier to manage that situation. So I think like there's been a lot of emphasis on the technology, but the staffing is really critical too. Well, uh, in, in both situations, like you guys mentioned, these things are going to cost and they are going to cost on, on a level that is probably more than something that uh, you would think about to phase in over a period of years, considering we are now in some cases in a matter of days or, or in the negative as some schools have opened up across the country uh, with or without these kinds of precautions in place. So let's turn to the government side of this. Uh, yesterday, the, the Senate left the week before the House left. They are now not going to consider, at least officially, unless there's some thawing of the ice between now and then, any kind of COVID relief bill until September. At that point, it, most schools would probably be beginning whatever they are going to have of their fall uh, semester. Uh, how much money are we talking about from the federal government, Sarah, to get some of these changes and uh, adjustments going? Yeah, so um, first I'll say when we scheduled this uh, this date, we thought we would be talking about a package that um, <laughs> that the federal government already um, already passed. Um, yeah. So it's just a huge policy failure, to be honest. Um, but so the we need a large federal aid package. It needs to come soon. Um, really, it needs to come already. And it needs to be flexible. And, you know, that's for two reasons. One is the revenue shortfall that we talked about, uh, especially that state governments are facing because of the recession and the additional costs that we've talked about. And so there are a lot of different estimates out there. Um, and, you know, the, the they're in the hundreds of billions of dollars per year. So depending on how long you think this will go on, um, the, that will affect how much money is needed. But um, the revenue shortfalls that states are facing um, are uh, probably at least a couple hundred billion per year. And then the additional costs are maybe on the same order of magnitude. So it's um, it's a lot of money that is needed soon. Yeah, uh, it, it's 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 one of those things that is is totally mystifying to me. 
that that we we have uh, gotten to this point, <laughs> and 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 as you as you mentioned that this this theoretically was supposed to be us parsing through exactly what was uh, what was sent to the states and and how it could be used. Uh, uh, is there any other way? Let's assume uh, that uh, you know motions not in motion indeed stay inert, like Congress has been. Is there any other way that we can get this kind of money, or is this the the amount that is needed only really viable via Congress? This is just from Congress. You know, yeah. the most of the states, nearly all of the states, ha- they have balanced budget requirements. They can't borrow, um, and school districts can't borrow this amount of money. I mean, without federal aid there's really not going to be a solution for schools to operate, you know, in, in, and it's not just this year. It's for the, the coming years. We saw it in the, the Great Recession, even without the pandemic side of things, just with the revenue shock, you know, th- those effects lasted for years, even with some federal response. Um, there was federal aid for one year and yeah, so it, it has to be federal. It's really, as you and Sarah both just said, it's unbelievable that we're having this conversation, <laughs> Sarah. And I started writing about this in a series of posts at Brookings in May. And we were um, we were writing about, you know, what now would seem extremely detailed policy points of how should we give out the aid and what exactly should the formula look like. And it was all from this point of, well, obviously there is going to be a follow-up to CARES and it will be much bigger and it will be soon. It will be in the summer. It will be in July. It will be, you know, and the the fact that now we're here and all of those points seem, um, yes, like we would love for it to be a really redistributive package that acknowledges that poorer places are suffering more and need more money. Um, But really what we would like is, uh, for the virus to be controlled and for there to be a large influx quickly that's that's very flexible that doesn't have a lot of strings on it and that's you know this is we're here to talk about schools and that's what we work on but yeah. you know there are other functions of state government that are facing um, uh, similar problems and you know any any aid that would go to state governments or local governments uh, would improve the situation for, for schools because that would, you know, improve the budget situation for states. So it could come in, in, in different forms, but right now there's, um, there are just nothing, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Let's actually go back because I was interesting with something you said, Nora, that during the great recession, uh, there was aid to schools, but uh, I'm curious from, from your guys's perspective and your, and your work here, what was the lasting impact of, of the great recession? If we are going to try to model out, uh, what a, a lack of money would do here, my guess would be, that some of the divides we see in schools and school districts where rich districts uh, are, are going to be able to weather this better, poor districts are not, uh, would kind of be exacerbated. Nora, do you think that's that's a correct line of thinking historically? Uh, uh, generally, and then a lot of it really depends on the setup in the individual states and how much the, within each state uh, the school finance system is based 
relies more heavily on local versus state sources. And so local taxes in most um, states come mainly from property taxes, which are more resilient during downturns. Um, and whereas the state taxes are coming mainly from income tax, sales tax, things that really suffer during a recession. Um, and if we think about what the Great Recession did to schools, you know, the federal aid sort of pushed back some of the negative impacts while it was there, and then it went away. And, you know, that the, the really lasting impacts for years that manifest in things like staffing, class size, um, and in achievement that you, that you see for students. There's a bunch of research look at, looking at the effects of the Great Recession. Um, so I, I think that the experience of the Great Recession should be motivating to Congress in thinking why we need aid. But honestly, I mean, so should other things like the fact that kids need to learn, parents need childcare, lots of things should be motivating it. This seems like it shouldn't be a super tough issue for um, bipartisan support if anything could get bipartisan support. Uh, dare to dream, dare to dream. <laughs> uh, maybe one day, maybe one day we'll, you know, uh, have something, uh, you know, that'll motivate Congress more than let's say a once in a century pandemic. You know, you'd think that'd be enough to move them over the, move them over the line, but I guess not. The equity impact of these cuts and this event will likely be um, more severe than during the Great Recession, where, you know, we do have research suggesting that the cuts that happened during the Great Recession, you know, affected uh, academic achievement and more so for lower income kids. But, you know, now we have this additional fact that that there's the money, but then there's also so much distance learning. And, you know, I think we can all agree that last spring was essentially lost and now partly because of the failure to act on the financing side and the failure to act on the public health side um, you know districts were uh, school leaders were really scrambling to try to put together a quality program and uh, I think for for lots of reasons the the distance learning is going to be less effective um, for students who are already disadvantaged. Um, so I think, you know, I, I would expect, I mean, you know, predicting the future is hard, but I would expect that uh, the effects of, of this event, the recession plus the pandemic will, um, will be larger than, than the great recession. Well, uh, la last question. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Nora. Well, I was just going to follow up a bit on your dare to dream. Bipartisan yes. Oh, sure. Yes, yes. Please, please dream, spend... dream with me, Nora. Dream of, of, of a world possibly <laughs> where Congress would do a thing. Oh, it has a post office. It's a great world. Um, <laughs> but the what I think would um, be most likely to help us get there is just keeping this package on the school side very simple um, and to just try to avoid things that are going to you know create more fights um, and if, if you think about the components of any aid package to schools you can sort of break it down into two main pieces there's going to be some conditions on aid and then there's going to be the formula to send out the aid and I think just keeping those conditions very minimal so can't get into partisan fights about it would be really important here. 
Um, so one example of uh, strings that could lead to a fight and a breakdown are saying that this money has to be for schools that are open in person. Um, you know, just to give a high profile example. Sure. Um, and then in thinking about the formulas, again, I would say thinking about a simple formula, um, staying away from existing federal programs. The CARES Act used Title I uh, as a way of distributing the funds, and that led to a lot of complications with existing rules about the Title I program. This wasn't an expansion of Title I. This was a different program. This was CARES, but they were saying we're going to allocate it in proportion to your Title I funds, and then this led to a lot of questions about um, how much of the money is going to private schools, unclear guidance, partisan fighting. Um, so just sort of steering clear of existing programs, keeping the strings minimal, um, and just tr trying to push the money out quickly. And and I do I do want to say just to not be totally reductive that uh, as you guys know at at the Brookings Institution people who write uh, all these policy papers this is complicated I mean obviously this is not a situation that a lot of people have a ton of experience about this is a unique problem in that it is not just one specific area that is hard hit it is pervasive and pernicious and it has risen and fallen in different geographical areas that is unique and. Considering Congress has, uh, you know, a, a job to handle these things, uh, you know, aside from going on vacation and trying to get reelected, uh, you know, that that would seem to be what they should do. One last question, uh, Sarah. Uh, I know that you guys are focusing mostly on how to keep these schools open, but uh, economically, what we hear a lot about schools is not only the education of the children, but also the absence of children so adults can go out into the workforce. Is there any sense of, uh, you know, if, if, if this money doesn't get there and these schools can't operate on, on the level that they should as safely as they can, that there is a larger economic impact to this uh, uh, because kids are just going to be a home more or, or uh, uh, not taken care of while parents are, are would otherwise be working some way? Yeah, so um, first before I answer that, I want to uh, say two things. One about the, how complicated it is. I, you know, a school, superintendent, a school district superintendent has a really complicated job right now, to be honest. Congress's job is, is not that complicated. They just need to, like, um, send some money to state and local. Um, so just to say that, and then also sure. to, to clarify that. They do have to do it in between uh, cable news hits. So to be fair, exactly. it's a busy schedule. Okay. Fine, yeah. yeah. So, um, and also just to clarify that, you know, we we think schools should be open in places where the public health situation um, means that it's it's safe. And I think in, in many places, that's that's not the case. And the funding needs to be there um, regardless. So, um, yeah, to go to your point about the larger um, effects on 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 the economy because of basically the lack of child care. So that is one function of schools um, is that it's a place where kids um, can be where while their parents do other things such as work. And I think, um, yeah, we can't expect to have um, have the economy, you know, come fully back until schools are open, um, having, the, having the child care that schools provide is going to be an important part of that. And I think, uh, you know, there are estimates uh, from other booking scholars suggesting that not having schools open could, um, you know, have a major impact on labor supply. 
especially for women. And, you know, in the short run, that means that those women are not able to fully participate and mostly women, some, uh, some men too, um, in their jobs. So obviously that is going to be a drag on the economic recovery. And I think also in the long run, uh, that may derail some of the progress that, um, that women have made in the labor market by, you know, sort of causing women to have to leave the, uh, the labor force on a, a, a long, you know, for a more permanent or longer term basis. So I think that's a huge issue. Well, uh, uh, this is obviously a very complicated and ongoing problem for a lot of people. And, uh, uh, there, there's a desperate need a need for cash uh, on, on all sides of this. Uh, and, and I think you guys did a great job of laying that out. And I would like to thank you guys for doing it. Sarah Reber is a David M. Rubenstein Fellow at the Brookings Institution and Associate Professor of Public Policy at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. Uh, we were also joined by Nora Gordon, an Associate Professor at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy. She is the co-author of Common Sense Evidence, The Education Leader's Guide to Using Data and Research, which will be published by Harvard Education Press this month and is available for pre-order now on Amazon. You can follow her work on Twitter at Nora E. Gordon. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Folks, thank you guys so much for being a part of this show. Uh, uh, this is a bit of a, a turn. We don't normally do kind of specials like this, but uh, it is uh, only because you guys support us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, including paying for Tamar to book guests. Uh, 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 Tamar, uh, uh, you, are, you and me, we are the, we are the totality of the PX3 staff. Uh, yes, as such, and, such uh, as it is. I I have to say, having been laid off from my other job, people, I I really extra appreciate it right now. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, who who knew that in this crazy world where we are facing so many uncertainties, that uh, Patreon was the safest gig in town. <laughs> uh, For uh, sure. And, and, and you guys have made it so. So please, a buck gets you the custom RSS feed, gets the uh, uh, podcast to you just a little bit earlier. Uh, $3 gets you the bonus show on Monday, the bonus show on Thursday. And folks, you're going to want it for the next two weeks because we have the Democratic and Republican conventions coming up. And... $10 club gets your name read at the end of the show. The donor class. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for uh, 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 really moving heaven and earth in these crazy times. Take politics seriously.com. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed it. Of course, our mailbag is at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Normally, we talk about all sorts of stuff, but this time, it is all about these kids. 
Uh, here we go. Beginning with Chris. Our school district is a suburb of Denver, and they started four days a week last year for budget reasons. With COVID, the start date has been pushed back a couple weeks, and options for middle school this week were A and B cohorts, alternating two days on campus, two days remote, or full remote. High school is one day per week, and elementary is the full four days. At this point, it is only one of, if not the only, metro district without uh, at least the first four to six weeks remote for all students. That is something that I hadn't thought about tomorrow. That uh, that that part of this, part of the, the the creativity here, is just trying to get kids some kind of in person. Uh, uh, time or, or that's the way to solve some of the uh, uh, crowding issues that you obviously have to think about when it's about communicating a disease? Yeah, there's sort of two parts. One is, oh, kids learn better in person and kids need socialization in person. And then the other half is how do we keep them physically apart from each other while they're at school? And so that like A, B, or alternate days um, doesn't really help working parents who have jobs because yeah. if you have to have them home half time or more, that's still hard. But maybe at least the kids get something like traditional schooling, uh, maybe. And then they also get some socialization, maybe. And I think that's going to be the big question because if you have half a class where everyone's wearing masks and being you know, two meters apart, I'm not sure how much that's like school, but yeah. it's probably better than nothing. Jeremy writes, I'm a married dad of twin seven-year-old second graders. God bless you, sir. They were supposed to be in school, but about 15 hours before the start of the first day, we got a call that the front office had been potentially exposed. So they were being quarantined. No front office workers, no in-person school, grand opening, grand closing and and that's another part of all this from a parent's perspective talk about uh, uh, uh not being able i mean if 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 it's unworkable to do two days on two days off the unpredictability of this virus has to just wreak havoc with any kind of normalcy let alone work schedule yeah i think a lot of parents function on making plans you know and that's not possible anymore. I think anyone that's starting in-person schooling has to expect some change in the other direction at some point in the school year. You just can't think that there's going to be schools that absolutely stay open as if it were any other year. Uh, a teacher who requested anonymity. So I'm going to give her the name of my third grade teacher, Miss Zielinski. Uh, she says, I'm a kindergarten teacher and on the back half of my years until retirement. And frankly, I'm scared. I'm more scared than I was the day an officer stood outside my room during arrival because a mother from my classroom had made a threat against my principal. I'm more scared than I had been during tornado warnings. I'm more scared than I was when a student get up, didn't get off the bus at their stop. She fell asleep and awoke to the driver yelling her name, which scared her. So she hid under the seat and nobody knew for a half an hour. <laughs> and I'm, I'm scared that one of my students, coworkers or myself will die. In all other cases, we had a plan and a clear objective. Right now, we have nothing. 
We're supposed to go back to school like normal, but with extra distance between students, but that's not normal. My room is a warm, welcoming place. We sit together on the rug and we read in a circle. We sit together with our clipboards and whiteboards and do work where I physically help students hold a writing utensil to teach pencil grip and letter formation. We don't sit and listen. We listen and do together. We collaborate. We share. We use manipulatives. We are hands-on. They cry and I take care of them. It's my job to teach them and to love them. I hope and pray for the best, and I don't want to expect the worst because, well, frankly, that's impending doom, and I can't let myself go down that road, at least not in public. So instead, I put on a brave face, I smile through my mask, that my district is not mandating, she adds parenthetically, and I cross my fingers and hope that my good-smelling Bath and Body Works Germax kills whatever I just got on my hands from tying wet uh, shoestrings, opening a slightly chewed-on cheese stick package, picking up the also-wet lid to an Expo marker that belongs to no one, and whatever else happens, because they're five-year-olds, and that's life. I wanted to read that just to, to make sure that we got some of the teacher perspective out there. Yeah, my teacher friends are definitely in the same boat. Uh, definitely different districts have different in-person and remote. And, um, you know, kids are, are germ magnets at any time of year. And this year there's sort of higher stakes. And I can only imagine the stress and, um, you know, good luck. And I really applaud her keeping a remotely happy face on during any of this because, that's maybe the hardest part for dealing with a room full of five-year-olds. And that's saying a lot. Yes. Uh, Matthew writes, I'm the sole technology person at a small public school district that consists of two schools and about 800 students. You want to know what the government could do? Here's an idea. Fix the internet. It's a crime. And there are still places in the world that can't get reliable internet connection for a reasonable price. It would be great if somebody, either at a state or federal level, mandated ISPs provide reliable internet to any family dwelling that needs it for school. The state and feds give schools unfunded mandates all the time. Why can't they do this? It doesn't even need to be fast internet. Just a reliable one megabit connection would be enough for kids to do their homework and Zoom meetings. Uh, then the same ISPs can upsell all they want. Sure, in some places that means horrible satellite, slow DSL, or point-to-point wireless. But if a home can get power, why can't they get them bits? Fix this and everybody would have fair access to the world of information and instruction. He then says he will step off his soapbox now. Um, you know, I, people have been saying that internet is a utility and should be treated as such for more than 20 years so definitely not a fully new idea and uh i have to say i kind of agree at this point not just for schooling but just this is modern world modern life and if they could do it with telephones in the first 50 years of the last century i'm pretty sure they could do it with internet now well you know i I think part of it is we've read about the digital divide for as long as there's been an internet Uh, uh and and the more and more that it has become a part of schools uh, and really computers have, have been a part of schools. We've heard about the fact that, hey, this is infrastructure that is hard to deal with. But, you know, even as inner city schools might have access to internet, there is just a big drop-off with rural areas. And rural areas have long been kind of ignored beyond our... And, and, the, and the weird thing is, is that they don't neatly fit in to our kind of political dichotomy and and they just wind up losing out over and over and over and over again. Uh, Jeffrey writes, I'm a father of five, ages 19, 18, 15, eight, 
and six. The 18-year-old is supposed to be going to college in the fall, but I'm very uneasy about allowing her to stay in the dorms. We've been playing the wait-and-see game, but things have continued to be unpredictable here in Michigan. The rule at the college is everyone needs to wear a mask at all times. As somebody who enforces that rule at work, it can uh, be a little lax depending on who's actually enforcing it. Wanted to read this because we haven't talked a ton about college. Uh, Tamar, you indeed have a stepdaughter that just graduated high school that is uh, facing some of these uh, issues while keeping five-year uh, keeping masks on five-year-olds is certainly a, 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 an impossibility at times. As an 18-year-old, I can't imagine that I'd be keeping a mask on all that much even then. Yeah, um, our 18-year-old had already decided pre-COVID to take a year off anyway, so she's not going to be going to any dorms Good move. anyway. Um, however, I will say that keeping an 18-year-old from socializing is nearly impossible. So in terms of the benefit of the six-year-olds is that they can't drive away. <laughs> yeah. And telling 18-year-olds, especially, let's say, new freshmen to not socialize too much, um, not share breathing space, uh, not share cups, not share bodily fluids, it, it's going to be a real challenge for everybody in any college situation. Um, and I, I feel for the parents of of those going into school. And at this point, I'm just sort of playing the waiting game myself and hoping that by next fall, things are figured out. Andrea writes, our county is small, less than 20,000 people. We've been very fortunate in terms of actual COVID numbers. At present time, our numbers indicate that by the governor's formula, all students will be returning to in-person learning on August 24th. The district is also uh, very direct that all parents need to be ready to switch modes as situations and guidance evolves. That being said, the district is also offering virtual options to any and every family that is not ready or able to send their child back, so there's no pressure to attend in person. The virtual option is through an actual virtual school curriculum, so it will be much more in-depth and rigorous than Zoom calls and worksheets that were made up last spring. The school board and administration has a living document on its website with all the mitigation factors in place for each plan, virtual, hybrid, in-person. This document details what lunch delivery looks like, playground time, class time, band, choir, art, library, special classes, regular classroom time, drop-off, and pickup. I find it to be very detailed, and it's obviously great care and time was put into this document, and it's only because of that, and with great caution, that I will be sending my child back to school this fall. I thought it was really important to read her email just because we've certainly spent a lot of time on the concerns because we don't want to dismiss those, but hopefully we hear more stories like Andrea's, right? Yeah. And I think there's two parts that are important. One is giving parents choices that are real is great instead of having everybody wait around for a pronouncement from a district. But also, I think this is a really great moment, if we're going to find any silver lining, that the school came up with like a fully remote plan. Because honestly, there are some kids that do really poorly in schools for whatever reason. Or there are some kids that like can't attend for illness or who knows what all the time. And the fact that it's now shown to be possible to create everything for remote learning from a public school district is fantastic and i think that more schools should be doing this if even if we do you know get lucky to have a post-covid era where things are back to the way they were i think every school district should basically have this plan all the time for 
if and when they have to go remote for a ton of different reasons. And finally, Alo writes, I'm confused. I'm both a parent and a teacher, university instructor here in Dubai. In Dubai, lawmakers have kept it up so the schools on whether they want to have uh, provided guidelines on what they must do to decide to open for face-to-face on August 30th instead of online classes. My university opted for online, but my uh, kid's school is opening face-to-face. To me, that's very ironic, but who am I to complain? We are arguing at the moment with the school administrators to let us off the hook, at least until January, but none of my emails are being answered. As of now, Dubai has had very few cases and very few deaths. And I just wanted to read that to say, you don't got to brag about it. You know, come on, man. Like, it's fine. We, 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 we're dealing with it here in America. It's fine. Good. Good, good for you, Dubai. Good for you. Yeah, good for you. Enjoy enjoy 120 degree temps. That's all I that's all I can say. <laughs> Although I'll tell you what, the heat's rising out here too, so maybe we shouldn't say that too loud. Uh, uh, Tamar, uh, thank you so much for doing the mailbag with us. Uh, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com is where you can send your emails in. Uh, uh, and thank you to all the parents. I, I got to say, I, I, I have to say, Tamar, the, I think that putting out the word that parents should write into the show was very cathartic. Because I got some novels. Like it took an it, it took a bit to edit some of these down to the stuff that we read on here. Because what when I when I put out the word, I was getting 800, 900 word emails explaining exactly the situation they were in. I think parents were were ready to burst. Yeah, I think keeping everyone home often alone um, makes them want outlets. And you gave them an outlet and they <laughs> took it. And, um, and a lot of parents have a lot of feelings right now that are, that are really hard. All right. Any final thoughts here as we wrap up our back to school PX three special? Um, so first off to the folks without kids, I hope this was educational for you. Uh, I, I think it was for you, Justin, to of just course. sort of get of that course. take. Yeah. Um, and also I know that the, the kids with the people without kids are hearing a lot of complaining from parents and, you know, I'm sorry. It's just sort of hard right now. And, and it'll, it'll, it'll work out is my long-term vision. And for the parents, you know, I can't stress enough that I just hope that fewer parents will worry about their kids. I know that things are hard. I know a lot of kids are struggling and a lot of parents are struggling, um, but in terms of school, like they will learn to read when they learn and they'll learn to do math when they learn and they'll figure things out and they're kids and we don't really have much of a choice. So don't take too much burden on yourself. Um, don't put too much burden on the school. Just try to ride this out in a way that keeps you sane because this isn't ending next month. So yeah. we might as well just have a plan to like play the long game. And that means staying sane. And that's uh, that's the one thing I want to highlight on the way out of here is that you can't have strong kids without strong parents. And uh, uh, I, I want to echo Tamar's sentiment that uh, you just you you hold the center, parents. Hold the center as best you can. Don't beat yourself up and erode your own uh, uh, ability to handle these things because things aren't going fantastic we are with you here at px3 and uh, we were happy to do something uh, for you guys and also like you mentioned educate folks who uh, might not understand some of the complexities of these issues 
Let's go ahead and get into our Titanic $10 tier. Thank you to everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Modesto's own Logan Cisco, NH Blumpkin, Chad, Headphones, Neil, Water Ice Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Utah Jimmy Montana, Frozen Summer, Zack and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Berkeley Steven, your boy Craig, TroubleFilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D Laser, I Boot My Pants, Just Another Pilot. Alex Mitchell, Severio, Martin, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Jerry, Andrus, Archie, J. Milius, The Jen, The Crap in My Pants, Olin and Angela, DL, Brian, IPoopMyPants.com, Miranda, Robert, Glenn, Wolf Brand, Chili Scoop, Richard, J. Pink, and Andrew. Again, you want to be a part of them? Take politics seriously.com. Uh, again, you can follow me at uh, Justin R. Young on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we are covering the conventions coming up next week. So not only will that be on the PX3 podcast, but also the PX3 live stream at twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. But until next time, tomorrow, do you want, do you want to do the sign off with me here? Sure. All right. You know, some shows talk about Paul. Here, 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 let's go ahead and uh, alternate on it. And then we'll both do the three at the end. Okay. okay? All right, here we go. So some shows talk about politics. Other shows talk about politics. And still more talk about politics, but this is the only show that talks about, talks about all three. All three. <laughs> <laughs>